the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Introducing Warrant Officer Brian Lawrence, ex-Australian Air Force engine fitter. Brian joined the Air Force in January 1961 and qualified as an engine mechanic and then as an engine fitter. He was posted to number two aircraft depot. In July of 1964, Brian was posted to 38 Squadron and then onward to Vietnam. Besides lots of paperwork and passports, he was issued with a World War II tin hat pocket knife and lanyard. On arrival at Tan Son Nhut Airport, Brian was amazed at the number of aircraft on the ground. In his words, thousands. He said a caribou was there to take them to Vung Tau. He soon got rid of his old tin hat and was taken to the United States Army store and issued with Yankee tin hats and a new M14 rifle with four magazines. Work was seven days a week at first to maintain the aircraft. Later, when more troops arrived, a night shift was commenced. After many adventures, trials and tribulations in Vietnam, Brian returned to 38 Squadron in Australia. He was again selected to go back to Vietnam in September 1965, but he then had the opportunity to go to New Guinea instead. On return from New Guinea, he was posted to number three aircraft depot at Amberley, working on Sabre aircraft. Brian elected discharge in January of 1967 and then re-enlisted in July of 1969. In January 1972, Brian was posted to 482 Squadron Amberley, working on Phantom aircraft. In July of 1973, he was attached to McClellan Air Force Base for the acceptance of the second ferry of F-111s to Amberley. He retired as a warrant officer engineer. Well, Brian, thank you very much for your time, and uh, you've had a very interesting career in the Royal Australian Air Force. You started in 1961. Why? Why did you join? What was the reason? My initial uh, joining was for uh, to get a trade. I lived at Maribor at the time, and uh, there was employment, but it, it wasn't hard to get a trade in Maribor unless you joined Walker's shipyards. That was the uh, reason for joining. And did you start in the Air Force as an engine mechanic or were you an engine mechanic before you joined the Air Force? No, I was a trainee. I, I joined as a trainee and uh, done all my training at Raf School of Technical Training in, uh, in Wagga. I'd done um, the mechanics course and then when I finished that, uh, I was posted off to East Sale in Victoria. As a new recruit, did you have a choice as to which area you went into or was it something that the RAAF decided for you? I had a choice of uh, engines or armament uh, at the end of my uh, basic training and uh, I I elected to go for engines. What was the fascination, Brian? I I like tinkering with engines at that and. um, that was um, my choice, yeah. You wrote in, in some information that uh, <laughs> in joining you were issued with a, a World War Two tin hat, a pocket knife and a lanyard. That's an interesting combination of items. That was our kit for Vietnam. 
Oh, right. <laughs> uh, what, a, what a great decision. So between 1961 and 1964 in your training and being then becoming an engine fitter, just take us through those four or, th- or three years as to what your career in the Air Force was involved in doing. Well, on the completion of my training, I went to uh, maintenance squadron in East Sail. I worked in on uh, windjills and Dakotas. Uh, the School of uh, Air Navigation was at Sail. There was two areas. There was uh, the, the jets, which uh, ran vampires and cameras, and the other, the uh, pistons, which was windjills and Dakotas. I spent all my time on uh, windjills and Dakotas uh, at East Sail, and and then and uh, went back to Wagga to do a fitter's conversion course. It would have been late 63. On completion of that, I was sent to a two-aircraft depot in, in Richmond on the uh, Pratt & Whitney uh, radial engines from the Dakota and the Windjill. We were doing the overhaul. I wasn't there very long, and then from there, well, mid-year, I was uh, posted across to 38th Squadron to go to Vietnam uh, with the Caribous. And that was in 1964, correct? Yes. And yes. working on the Windjills and the Dakotas, was one more difficult to service than the other, or did they have their own idiosyncrasies? They were both the radial engines, so the, the windjill engine was a, a nine-cylinder single-row radial engine, and the, the Dakota was a 14-cylinder twin-row, whereas the windjill had a counterweight propeller, the, the Dakota had a hydromatic propeller. Similar, because they both made in Pratt & Whitney, they, they, they were similar to, to work on. Fun to work on? Did they have their challenges? Oh, no, they, they were an easy aircraft to work on. The, the greatest problem with them was, was oil leaks, and they were pretty good for leaking oil. Now, other than that, they didn't give a lot of problems. Okay, so, and I want to go back to the what you were given, the, that tin hat and the pocket knife. What's the thinking behind that kind of issue when they're going to send you to Vietnam? Does that indicate that they really didn't know what you, what to expect when you got there? Well, that's that's true. Yeah, none of us ex- knew what to expect when we got there. I I I didn't even know where Vietnam was when I was uh, elected to go there. They sent us out with the uh, I think they were DIs at the time to do two weeks training for, for going to Vietnam, and where we uh, went to the range and, and fired the old I think there were SLRs at that time and and. Um, and done a bit of survival training, and, and then off we went. Did you go, therefore, with the first set of caribous? Was that the appointment? Yes, that's right. There was a crew there already. I went over in September. The first crew arrived in in August. They, they went uh, up to Butterworth in July and then, then across to Vietnam in August, whereas I went up in September. I've been led to believe that because there were so few, or there were, what, four or five caribous there in that period of 1964 and no supplies from Australia. So as an engine fitter, what were your challenges in looking after the caribous in those early days? Well, it's a, a pretty big learning curve because uh, we uh, we were all pretty uh, very little experience on caribous. Most of us had Dakota experience or, or a, a twin row wasp experience, but not uh, the caribou had uh, a similar engine to the uh, Dakota. But it, it was a Pratt and Whitney again, but it uh, and a fourteen cylinder, but it was a 
what they called an R2000. The propeller was a, a completely different propeller. It, it was a fully reversible with an integral oil control, whereas the, the Dakota used engine oil to, to operate the propeller. The, uh, the Caribou had a, a completely integral oil control that uh, operated the prop. So um, we all had to learn a little bit on the way. You were uh, amazed, I believe, when you flew into Vietnam or when you arrived in Vietnam at the at the number of aircraft on the ground. I, I hadn't been overseas at all at that stage in, in my, my career and uh, coming into Thompson Newt in, in Saigon, it was just acres of aeroplanes, acres of, <laughs> as far as the eye could see. The um, It had the um, local Vietnamese Air Force and, and the U.S. Air Force and uh, U.S. Army aircraft, plus civil, of course, and uh, quite a lot. Yeah, and what was work days like, uh, Brian? I mean, uh, challenging, seven days a week, night shifts? How did, how did you cope with that? When we first got there, it was seven days a week. We didn't have initially have a night shift because we didn't have enough troops. But eventually we, we got more troops and, and uh, we got a night shift and we had Sundays off. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> so so Saturday was a night for relaxation, is that right? That's it, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Apart from the servicing the aircraft, even without spare parts, what was daily activities like? I mean, t- with target practice, uh, making sandbags? For What did you do during the day apart from service? Yeah, well, when we weren't servicing the aircraft, in the early days, we, we used to go down the sand dunes and, and fill sandbags and bring them back. And, and uh, we made a bit of a bunker around an old uh, shipping container. That was our bunker. We used to go out to the sand dunes and, uh, and have a bit of target practice. The guys, the air crew used to bring back all sorts of weapons. They scavenged around the traps. We used to have a variety of weapons to go and uh, have a bit of target practice in the sand dunes. With that in mind, tell me or share with us when there was an Australian ambassador turned up and you did a drill, which normally would have been done with maybe a three oh three or a rifle like that, but you did it with an EM-14s, which the Yanks just couldn't get their head around. They were amazed. Tell us about that. When we when we got our initial armament provided to us when we arrived, it was a M, American M14. So when the ambassador was coming, the CO Chris Sudgeon decided we should do a guard of honour for him. Most of the senior NCOs hadn't ever done anything with SLRs, so they were 303 men. So we we done our drill movements similar to a 303 with the M14. And, of course, uh, we done it between the hangars. The other hangars were all manned by Yanks, so they all uh, all come out to watch because they'd never seen a, an M14 done with a 303 movement. That must have been rather difficult, Brian, <laughs> rather challenging. It was a bit different. <laughs> yeah, the other, the other aspect, too, is that in with the United States forces, there were many, many conscripts who, who were sent from the United States. And I've been led to believe that that meant that they're with them driving various vehicles. There was a lot of close shaves with them hitting the planes. Can you relate that to us? Oh yes, yeah. They they had a, a really good reputation for hitting aeroplanes, either with a forklift or a fuel tanker or something. 
you'll find in most cases that if there was an opportunity there, we'd drive the fuel tankers ourselves. We'd go down to the tanker pool and grab them ourselves. Uh, the Yanks didn't mind. Uh, their, their conscripts, you know, if, if he was a cook in civilian life, they'd drive a, he'd be driving a truck. What was the relationship like with between oh, with ground crew between USA and Australia? We had a really good relationship with the Yanks. We sourced all our spare parts from the US Army. They uh, had caribous at Vuntel, so we sourced our spares through them. The only real snag with with them was uh, when we had an engine change, we had to source engines from the US Army and they had uh, Spartan engines. They, that Spartan was the contractor for their overhaul. When Spartan done an overhaul, they, they just repainted the engine. <laughs> <laughs> we used to have all sorts of problems with Spartan engines and, of course, we had to return our brand-new engines to, to, to do um, exchange, yeah. What was a daily daily life like for you in Vietnam uh, as distinct from a pilot who's out when the, who took those caribous out to various events, various undertakings, you're still back in Vietnam, back on the ground. So what was daily activity like for you? What kinds of things did you do to keep your mind alert? First thing in the morning was, was pre-flighting the aircraft. We'd be out um, doing the pre-flights from the aircraft, get them all ready for um, to launch. Then if we had uh, periodic servicings to do, we'd carry on with them. There was always seems to be something, you know, we, we had repairs, different things. We used to go down to the uh, American uh, propeller shop where we'd draw a new propeller. It used to come in a big wooden box and we had to assemble it down there and put it on a rig and test it to make sure it, it um, everything worked properly. The, the Yanks ended up giving us a whole new prop testing rig in which we brought up to our hangar, which saved us that problem. And um, they seemed to uh, be very generous with, with spares. There was no problem there. Other times we used to go off once a month, shoot off our, uh, our M14s uh, in the sand dunes. But when we uh, resupplied our ammo, it all come in, in, in uh, boxes with, with clips on it for machine guns. So after a trip to the – we used to get back in the hangar and have to unclip all our ammunition and, and uh, refill our magazines. You uh, talked about the food, You start where you started and then you end up to – Da Nang. What was that aspect of your life in Vietnam like when you arrived? Food quality? wasn't very good. Uh, the, the America, as I said, most of the, the people in the mess, in the US mess, army mess, were uh, conscripts. So, um, yeah, it was pretty, uh, pretty rough tucker there. But going to Da Nang, it was a US army base. And no, no, well, I didn't think there was any conscripts there. Completely different atmosphere there. Really good meals, really good accommodation, and yeah, different, different yeah. world. Up you there. must, before you went to Dadang, you must have looked forward to aircraft coming from Butterworth, who would no doubt bring beer and meat. Yeah, yeah. Well, the once a month Butterworth run was always uh, followed by a barbecue at, at the villa. Good evening. Uh, we used to have a uh, army uh, jeep trailer, which we'd half fill with water and throw ice in, and all the beer would go in there. <laughs> and, uh, Mate, why did you um, go to uh, to New Guinea? What what brought that about? A lot of our guys 
done more than one term in Vietnam. I was due to go back to Vietnam for my second tour in September 65 and then there was a opportunity to go on the uh, detachment to New Guinea at Jacksonfield in, in uh, New Guinea. I elected to go to New Guinea rather than go back to Vietnam. Was your motivation to go to New Guinea because that's where Dad's grave was in the Lay War Cemetery? That was part of it, yes. What is your memory of that when you actually visited his grave? Can you recall what you thought, what you felt? The opportunity came when uh, Air Vice Marshal Ford was on a VIP, uh, Caribou VIP, up to Lay for the weekend. I asked if I could go and Flight Lieutenant Raymond, Ron Raymond, was the C- uh, our commanding officer of the detachment and uh, he approached uh, the Air Vice Marshal and, and got permission for me to be uh, part of the crew. So uh, I went, went up to Lay for the weekend and uh, the loadmaster on that trip was Joe Thomas and Joe accompanied me to the Lay War Cemetery and, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, quite an emotional time to uh, see Dad's grave. Was he in the Air Force or the Army? No, he was in the Army. He was he was killed when I was 11 days old. Okay, so you, your memories of Dad were... None. None, yeah. Only pictures, only photos, yeah. You chose to be take discharge on January the 1st, 1967. Uh, can you remember why? Initially I was going to uh, re-enlist uh, and then... Uh, Seen an ad in in the Courier Mail about wanting uh, aircraft technicians in uh, New Zealand, so uh, I applied and, and got the job in uh, at Hawker Sidley's in in Wellington, in New Zealand. Made my decision for to uh, to get out in January. Did you spend the next five years in New Zealand in that job, or no, no? Um, I went over for um, it was a two-year contract. Uh, they paid our fares over. Well, I was married at that stage. They paid our fares over in uh, our first week's accommodation. Anyhow, the Hawker Sidley lost the. Uh, it was working on uh, New Zealand aircraft, uh, New Zealand Air Force aircraft. Uh, Hawke Sidley's lost the contract about 18 months later and um, they offered me another position in, in the boat building and I said, no, thanks, I'll go back to Australia. So I came back to Australia and um, worked for, for my father-in-law for, for uh, one season, diving a semi, carton cane, and, uh, and then I got a job with uh, Sky Service Engineering in Harvey Bay working on light aircraft. Then... 1972 comes along, and again it's a January, and you decide to rejoin. Why? No, I, I joined back in 69, July 69. 69, was it? Uh, yeah, um, Sky Service Engineer and put me off because they had a bit, it got a bit quiet there. So um, the boss there said, why don't you join the Air Force again? I said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> was that an, is that an easy thing to do? I mean, if you resigned from the Air Force, is it an easy process to get back in or have you got to go through a a whole lot of rigour? Depends on which one you get. <laughs> I mean, initially, yeah, it was it was quite easy because there was no problems. But then uh, there was no vacancies for engine fitters, so I said, "Well, you know, I'll do anything, you know, come back in sort of thing." I come back in as a truck driver to the Air Force in in sixty nine, 
and I was posted across from, from I went to um, Edinburgh and done, I only done a short recruit training. I didn't have to do the full lot. I just done a refresher, sent me across to Laverton. And when I was in Laverton, um, I ran across and a warrant officer, engineer, who used to be my flight sergeant at sale, and uh, he said, what are you doing as a truck driver? And I explained to him that there was no vacancies for engine fitters. He said, come with me. <laughs> so so is, this, is this when you went to 482 Squadron? No, no, I went. I actually got a, an interview with the, um, the Air Vice Marshal Lush uh, in Laverton, explained my situation where there's one week later, I was over at Point Cook as an engine fitter. That was probably, um, yeah, late 69. How long before 482 Squadron when you were working on Phantoms? I spent two years over at Point Cook yeah, working on windshields. It wasn't, it was a pretty good job, actually. I, I liked it that. Um, the thing about that was that the uh, senior engineering officer at Point Cook he was also a pilot, so he used to do the test flying. So if you worked on an air, done a major servicing on an aircraft that required a test flight, he'd take you for a ride. That was really good. I went to 482 Squadron in January 72. And the senior engineering officer there was, was Chummy Wade, who just happened to be my engineering officer in Vietnam. Yeah, I got along real well there. Yeah. What was it like working on the Phantom? Phantom was a magic aircraft. I loved it, yeah. What was special about it? The brute power of it. It was a monster. You know, when you uh, you put it in the full afterburner, the woman ground rattled. Yeah, it was a good aircraft to work on, and and a very it, it had a um, General Electric J seventy nine engine in it. Really good. What uh, Brian took you to McClellan Base in the United States of America? What was the reasoning behind that? What we did is, is um, you might be aware that the the F one elevens were in storage over in America at Fort Worth for some years before we took delivery of them. So they came over in four batches of six. I was on the second ferry. So when the crews brought them from Fort Worth down to McClellan Air Force Base, we had to bring them up to mod status and uh, and do all the acceptance flights and that on them. So uh, I was at McClellan for six weeks. We each were allocated an aircraft and uh, I had my aircraft to look after for six weeks before uh, we ferried it back to Australia. Life in the States, pretty good while you were there? Oh, it's a different world over there, yeah. Like McClellan Air Force Base in that time had 24,000 people on on base. You know, F-111s, there, there was hangers full of them, yeah. There were, it was good. They had everything over yeah. there. When were you promoted to warrant officer? Oh, uh, later in my career. It was about uh, 68, 69, somewhere there. In terms of being a warrant officer, you are the link between the officers above and the enlisted personnel, how did you deal with that? What what were the challenges for you or how did you accomplish what you accomplished? Well, I was lucky in one aspect is the fact that as a warrant officer, I was in the uh, rework section of the TF-30 engine overhaul, which is the F-111 engine. I'd been on F-111 engines right from 72 right through till then and so I had a pretty good experience. I was able, if, if there was any problems, I was able to troubleshoot them and no worries. I, I relied on my sergeants and flight sergeants for communication to the troops but I still did get around them 
and uh, look over their shoulder from time to time. When you reflect back, as you are now doing, when you reflect back on your career from 1961 uh, in the Royal Australian Air Force, what stands out for you as a pretty significant, pretty important and pretty nice memory with the Air Force? I think the, the fact that you join up and you go all the way to, to warrant officer is, is an achievement. I loved going to work when I was working on F-111s. It was, it was one of those jobs I just, I loved it. It makes it easy to, to, to work when you, you go to work and enjoy it. And if, uh, do you have young children in the family? I had kids then. The reason I, when I went to support command, I went uh, in, in the early 80s, I went for three years down to support command. Well, I left my family back in Ipswich. We had our own home there and uh, the kids were all in high school then. So um, yeah, I went unaccompanied. I lived in uh, Tottenham, outside and smash there for three years and then uh, went back to Ambley. So um, the decision to get out, I guess as a warrant officer, you get the privilege of, of postings, giving you a phone call and said, look, you're on the list to be posted. Where would you like to go, Canberra or Melbourne? I said, there's a third choice. I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's number three? All right, let's, uh, one of your, uh, let's say one of your children comes up to you one day and they've shown a particular bent uh, for a trade, whatever the trade might be, and they say... I've got this interest in trade. The Air Force, is it a good career to get into? What would you say to them? Oh, I'd recommended it. I, I, I actually, my my grandson, uh, one of his friends, uh, he was over here one time some years back now. He asked me about joining the Air Force and I said, go for it, you know, and uh, he ended up joining and, and uh, he, he loved it too. And uh, he's since left the Air Force, but he's working for Boeing, still at RAF Base Ambly. So, uh, yeah, it didn't hurt him. Brian, yeah. this has been a real pleasure to talk to someone whose feet are on the ground. You know, it's oftentimes people, when they think of the Air Force, the first thing they think of is a pilot. But without people like you, the pilot wouldn't exist because the pilot's aircraft wouldn't get off the ground. So it's been a pleasure to be able to chat with you, Brian, and, and, and congratulations on your career. I really do appreciate very much the time we've spent today. So, sir, thank you. Good. Thanks very much. It's been nice talking to you. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.